0: So that was something that came out of this that I think it's both a consequence of the success of beef quality assurance programs and, you know, an effort to continue um, to improve our our product supply. This whole idea of quality management isn't a you did all things bad one day and then you fixed them the next day. It's about the philosophy of continuing to improve over time. A whole
1: new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now, you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Hi-D from DSM Firmanish can help your cattle get the vitamin D they need this winter. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Data shows most cattle don't get the vitamin D they need, especially in winter months. Hi, D from DSM Firminish can ensure your cattle get the recommended vitamin D level to support bone strength, help immunity, and improve performance. Visit DSM.com forward slash HY D to
2: learn more. Hi, welcome to the Beef Podcast Show. I'm one of your hosts, Brad White. Happy to be joined by Dr. Keith Belk this afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So we're happy. We're happy to have Dr. Belk with us. He's he is a department head at Colorado State University and in their Animal Science Department and has done a lot of great research over the years in a variety of areas. But I will let him tell us a little bit about what he does. Dr. Belk, welcome, and tell us a little bit about you and and what you do every day. Well, firstly,
0: thanks for having me. It's a good opportunity to share some of the things that we've been working on, and I appreciate that very much. Um, I actually was serving as department head for the Department of Animal Science at Colorado State up until this last July. And at that point, I stepped down. I stepped back into a faculty position, so I'm now getting the opportunity to relearn how to do things that aren't administrative. And uh, I serve as the... uh, a professor and director of the Center for Meat Safety and Quality, and also hold the uh, Kenny and Myra Monfort Chair in Meat Science here at CSU. And so we do a lot of work, uh, and pretty, pretty much all things meat, and it starts all the way with genetics of cattle production, or pork production, uh, and moves all the way through to retail and to exports. And so we generally have things going at uh, multiple levels of the industry supply chain, and it's a fun place to be. And you've done
2: a variety of things, and, and some of it all, all meat-related, and we'll focus on the, the beef cattle side today, and I know one of the things you're very familiar with is the National Beef Quality Audit, and, and I think the most recent came, came out last year. Tell, tell us maybe at a high level, for those that aren't familiar, what's the process and what were some of the major findings?
0: Yeah, this is an important study. It's probably in my citation list. Um, It's some of the papers that are most highly cited in all of the work that we've done over the past 30 years. But um, it's a good question. The National Beef Quality Audit originated in 1991. Um, At that time, the National Cattlemen's Association, which subsequently became NCBA, um, they were looking at ways to... um, help restore demand for beef, and a lot of folks won't remember, but um, we were in a nosedive relative to demand for beef in the late 1980s, and uh, so they were looking for solutions to that problem, and one of the things that they started looking at was a guy named Dr. Darrell Wilkes and Chuck Lambert, who were at, with NCA at the time, they started looking at this idea of implementing process control systems into the beef production chains to help improve the quality, which in turn would improve the demand for beef as an as a effort to get at this demand problem they were facing. And so they went all the way back into history and looked at the, um, the ways that uh, quality management systems had developed and evolved over time um, and studied, for example, the works of W. Edwards Deming, um, who was a real famous um, statistician that was also involved with businesses around the world and establishing quality management. Um, most people would be familiar with the, con- the, the Ford Motor Company in the 1980s. They were in dire straits. Um, the companies that Dr. Deming had taught quality management to in Japan, like Toyota and Honda and others had captured basically a big chunk of global market share in automobile production. And it's because they were at that point producing products that were more satisfactory to consumers than the products that were being produced in Detroit. And so Ford was spiraling. And uh, so Dr. Deming went in and helped Ford Motor Company implement these quality management practices, which is really just the philosophy of, rather than trying to catch defects after everything has already been done and the product is produced to build quality into the system so that you don't produce those defects to begin with. And, uh, there's a lot of things now in our, in our society that we do that with, but, um, it was novel at the time. And so that idea is based on the premise that you can begin to manage things that you can measure and So the guys, Daryl Wilkes and, and Chuck Lambert, they had this idea that we need to go out into the beef industry and measure what quality looks like so that we can begin to implement Dr. Deming's philosophies and manage those things so that we don't produce defects to begin with. And when you look at businesses that have done that over several decades, it doesn't just increase demand for the product, although that's one of the things that it does, it also reduces the cost of production dramatically. And so as a consequence, the companies that have implemented that kind of philosophy actually become more profitable. So these guys had what I thought was a really novel idea. Let's improve demand and address this issue we're facing at the end of the 1980s, while simultaneously you know, making the product more affordable to a greater number of consumers. That was an important aspect of this. And what they decided to do was the National Beef Quality Audit. So um, if you're going to manage things, you need to be able to measure them. And so we went out into the industry and we took a snapshot of what things were important to uh, the people that make purchasing decisions up and down the supply chain of the beef industry. Um, and, and what things we needed to improve as an industry. And, and since then, now we've now conducted that study approximately every five years since. And so we were on, I think, the I'll get this wrong probably, but the eighth or ninth round of that study. And uh, beginning in 1994, we also incorporated into it what we call the National Market and Bull Study, which is, you know, the other part of the industry. Uh, where we take the cow herd that's producing calves and those also enter the beef supply chain. And so we we incorporated that part of the study into the National Beef Quality Audit. And so we've just finished up the 2022 round of the study. Um, There's basically 14 universities that are involved in the project. Um, My group here at CSU leads the phase one part of that study, which is uh, going out and interviewing people that make purchasing decisions up and down the supply chain. And then uh, Texas A&M University leads the other part called phase two, which is where we send a whole fleet of students all over the country into about 40 different packing plants to actually take a snapshot um, of what the quality and and, um, defect characteristics in in the beef supply looks like at that point in time. Then we report that data back to the industry and they make strategic decisions based on what we're looking at. And So that's a long-winded answer to what you
2: asked me, but that's kind of what the, the National Beef Quality Audit's all about. Oh, that's perfect because I, I think it's often we don't have that perspective. And in retrospect, it all makes sense, but it was different. The industry was different when we're talking now 30 plus years ago in the 90s, 80s, 90s, when these types of things weren't done and the quality of cattle was different right we've had a a, an industry that's comprised of a lot of different people everybody had their own input their own management style maybe describe uh when this started what would be expectations for the quality of cattle or the quality of meat and the consistency of the beef that we produced what was it like in the early 90s or the uh yeah
0: yeah that's a a great question, really, because it has changed a bunch. Yeah. Um, and part of the reason it's changed is because of this study uh, and, and also the implementation of beef quality assurance programs around the United States. Beef quality assurance has been an important aspect to this. It is the part where you implement new production practices to improve the quality and the satisfaction of the product. But to answer your question, if you go back and look at, for example, 1991, we, we had problems with cattle that were too fat. We didn't produce enough marbling, really simple stuff. And um, every audit that I've been involved with, which is all of them, um, there's been complaints about cattle becoming too large, but yet they continue to become larger. So we haven't, we haven't got that one solved yet, but, um, but but the other things we saw were things like too many dark cutters. Um, for those of the audience that isn't familiar with dark cutters, that's a condition that's caused by cattle that are stressed. And once the, the meat is in rigor mortis, um, it, it it binds too much water. And so it appears really dark to the eye. And so it's not very desirable. And uh, so we had too many of those. And um, and, and then there, there was an assorted other things. The one thing that didn't come up in 1991 was things that surrounded food safety. And, um, you know, we, we think in the beef production sectors of the industry of food safety and quality management being together. You know, those are things that we address. We, we address both of those with our beef quality assurance programs. Um, but nobody talked about food safety in those days. And you might you know, recall that the big problem hit the beef industry in 1993 when we had E. coli 015787. And so prior to 1993, people weren't thinking about, you know, beef-borne pathogens and things like that 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 would cause, you know, recalls and, and would make people sick and that sort of thing. So it wasn't until 1995 and even really 2000 that we started seeing uh, for example, food safety issues show up. Um, now, by far and away, food safety is the number one criteria that they have an expectation that we meet in the food chain. And and so we've seen a lot of changes like that over the years. A lot of folks will remember in 1991, we had a big problem with injection site lesions that were showing up in really valuable parts of the carcass, like the sirloin, the top sirloin and the loin. Um and so we started a program through the Beef Quality Assurance Program that helped producers understand that they needed to take those injections and move them from the butt up to the neck. And we have a zone now where you're supposed to, you know, provide vaccination and injections to calves. And uh, that's made all the difference in the world. We went for, you know, from, a, you know, 20 or 15 percent injection site um, rate to you know, virtually almost zero at this point, and so um, that's a big win. That was a consequence of learning about a problem that we had and then implementing programs to fix it. And so, uh, there's been a lot of those things that have changed over that period of time. Well,
2: and I think that's I, you're exactly right. And I was going to bring up the injection sites because that's as I remember that was that was one of the big pushes. And you said if we can't measure it, we can't manage it. I think that was one of the times too that we realized it's the entire process. Cause I like when you described Deming's work and going back to trying to prevent defects. Some of those injection site lesions could have occurred even when they were calves, when we weren't thinking about the, the meat at the end of it and anywhere through the whole production system. So that educational process is critical. And as you highlighted at that time, If we said we had a a group of cattle that had uh, good quality grades, that would be a much different perspective than today in 2023, when we said we had a group of cattle that had good quality grades or percent choice, Uh, what would be considered good is relative by the, by the timeline. What did you find in this year's uh, or last year's beef quality audit? What were some of the big ticket items or big issues?
0: Well, it's funny you should mention quality grade because that, that's one of the things that has um, shown up. Uh, we, uh, I think most people will, will remember that I'm going to use the percentage of the fed cattle supply that grades U.S. prime, okay, the highest quality grade we have, right? That's the stuff I like to eat when I go to a white tablecloth restaurant. Sometimes I can buy prime steaks out at various retail stores. Most for most of our history, the percentage of the population that graded prime was two percent or below, and um, there's been a lot of impetus put on that uh, emphasis put on that at each quality audit that was conducted over the years, saying that we've got to figure out ways to create what we call a more consistent and desirable consist of quality grades, so an offering of various quality grades that consumers want to buy. Remember, we were coming out of the 1980s when we had the first audit where a good chunk of the retail merchandising force of the United States, you know, the great big retailers at that time, they were moving to selling what we called no-roll beef. That was beef that was not graded. But the reason that it wasn't graded wasn't because they chose not to grade it. It was because it wouldn't have qualified for a quality grade that had value. And so we were essentially marketing an inferior product from the eating quality perspective. And we think, as meat scientists, that that was one of the leading contributors to that loss of beef demand in the 1980s. Now, you look at what we're finding now in, in 19 or in 2022, uh, the percentage prime carcasses in this last audit averaged over seven percent of the population. We had there periods of time when we were doing this study when that when that number was over ten percent, and the percentage of choice plus prime is now over seventy six percent. That would have been unthinkable in 1991, and you know I attribute that to a, a lot of things. I mean that's that's cattlemen incorporating genetics for quality grade into their production processes. It's incorporating better management strategies in the feed yard. I mean, it's a, it's a whole range of things that the industry's done to achieve that, but it's a huge story. It's great story to tell. Um, the other thing I, wa- I wanted to mention about things that have improved, um, if you look at the BQA program per se, so that's sort of our mechanism for implementing things we learn in the quality audit, right? Um, to implement the new procedures for achieving quality in the product and one of the things that has been added between the 2016 National Beef Quality Audit and the 2022 Quality Audit was the transportation BQA programs so the training of people that transport cattle either as feeder cattle or as fed cattle or whatever to packing plants uh, and 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 incorporating them into the BQA system. Because if you have a truck driver that doesn't understand, you know, what creates bruises on cattle or what the significance of bruises are on cattle, then you're going to wind up with, you know, still defective products after they pass through the packing plant. And so the number of, of truck drivers in this study that have now subjected themselves to BQA training is outstanding, and the fed cattle population—it's over ninety percent. Wow! And so, uh, so that was something that came out of this. That I think it's both the consequence of the success of beef quality assurance programs, and you know, an effort to continue um, to improve our, our product supply. This whole idea of quality management isn't a—you did all things bad one day, and then you fixed them the next day. It's about the philosophy of continuing to pr- improve over time. And so that's an indication that they're doing that and that
2: we, we're going to continue to improve that over time. Yeah, it's, it's, very, it's, it's all about the system. And as you describe it, I think it hopefully it makes everybody feel like they're a part of this chain. And it's like a championship pick a sport, championship sports team. Not only does it take everybody, but you can't take plays off. Because you, if you wanna stay at the highest level, you can't take a play off or you're gonna get in trouble. And, and in this case, she said, well, I can't skip the importance of transportation. I can't skip the importance of some of these other things. There's nothing to look over because we're at a high, high level. And that's just, just amazing where we've come on things like quality grade, but, but still some room there. So the, the transportation, the quality grade, uh, I- any areas that you see as opportunities to, to take the beef industry to even the next level? We've, uh, we've got one problem that's sort of shown up and then didn't
0: show up, and now it's showing up again. Um, as you know, a, a lot of the beef we produce in North America goes into grinding programs for, for food service, and particularly the quick-serve restaurants. And it's really about 50% of the beef we produce. And what showed up again in this audit, that it didn't show up in 2016 as prevalently, I would say, but it did again here, um, is the fact that we have foreign object contamination still a problem in the beef supply. And primarily the thing that identified as a problem was buckshot. So shot from, you know, shotguns. So there's people shooting our cows and our and our calves out there. Um, that's s- still a problem. We had when we do the strategy workshop, which is the last thing we do for this study, where we bring in leaders from all up and down the, the supply chain to, to discuss the results and figure out what to do about them. Um, one of the people that came in was Dr. Wayne Morgan. He's in charge of food safety and quality programs for Golden State Foods. And they're one of the largest suppliers to the McDonald's Corporation. And so they make a lot of ground beef every day. And uh, he told us in, in that meeting that 365 days a year, they find shot in beef that they're grinding in their plants for, you know, they're going into quick serve restaurants. And so that's a problem that we've got to fix. And we're not, you know, I know for a fact that, you know, it's not ranchers necessarily shooting their cattle. It could be some, but it, it, there could be a lot of reasons this this is happening. But as a beef quality assurance system, we've got to figure out a way to begin to address this. Do you do you see that
2: more? Uh, I want to follow up on the shot a little bit because you mentioned both, both fed cattle and cows, bulls, the two, the two components of that quality audit. Do you see the shot more in one of those populations than the other, or is it equal in both? Um, it de-
0: depends on which part of the audit you, you look at. Um, when we asked for um, dispensation records from the Food Safety Inspection Service, um, there was no plants, no packing plants that we audit in phase two that didn't have a problem and weren't identifying foreign object contamination. Now, in that case, it could be more than shot. It could be things like darts, which have also been a problem. Um, It can be, there's other things that contribute to that. um, Things that are anomalies, you know, Um, wooden use of wooden pallets in the processing sometimes ends up creating foreign objects, but, but shot per se, showed up in 100% of the plants as a problem. And um, what that tells me is it's in both the fed beef and the market cow and bull um, supply chains. I'm virtually certain that you would see more of it from a prevalence perspective in the market cow and bull supply just because cows are, seem to be subjected to it you know, more than fed cattle. Um, and I'm I'm thinking when I say that here of, you know cattle that are running on public range and you know people could be shooting them or whatever and you wouldn't really have much control over that um those are those are the types of scenarios that we've got to be begin thinking about relative to bqa but um but yeah you know it's probably more prevalent in the the market cow and bull supply than it is in the fed cow supply but we see it across
2: the board so that would be my guess too it's uh just from my perspective, and I'm sure from, from yours, it's unfathomable how that, I mean, cause, cause how that happens frequently enough that we're seeing it at this level. And, that, and that's something we definitely have to figure out. I want to follow up. Yep. You, you said darts as well. So, so maybe tell us a little bit more. What do what you see in there? What, how frequently does that occur? Um, we don't see it a lot. But when we
0: see it, it's a big problem.
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, a big problem. Um, if, if you cost a, a plant, a modern packing plant, and this could be anybody's plant. Um, if you cost them 10 minutes of downtime, then that's cost the industry a big chunk of money, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, um, and so even though they don't see those as frequently when they see one, it causes that kind of a problem in the plant. And, um, so we're talking about darts that are being used, um, through either air guns or otherwise that are being used to vaccinate or to, um, implement injections in, in cattle that are either on range or, um, sometimes in feedlots. And, um, it's, it's a difficult thing. I'm not saying we should or shouldn't use them because I'm not, you know, a veterinarian, but, uh it's a difficult thing to control. If you think about that process and they end up getting under the hide. And so we see them in, you know, variety meats and drop products. We see them in meat products. Um, I've sat in, in Packers, um, plants, you know, where they'd have a series of them lined up on a desk to show us. And, um, what I would say is that it, if if the veterinarian community thinks that that's something we ought to continue to use, then we ought to figure out a better way to control them so they don't end up in the food chain, because they are a, they're a significant problem.
2: And, and do they cause such a big problem with downtime because of their size or location or getting them out? Because you mentioned they, they cause more issues with downtime. Why, why is that? All, all the yeah, all the above when,
0: whenever you find them, depending on where they're located and how they're located, whether they're found with a metal detector or some other means. Um, I mean, it can be a lot of different reasons, but
2: whenever they're there, they stop the chain. So okay. problematic and certainly something to, to consider and, and and it goes back to what you initially talked about is, we've made such progress working together as an industry that we need to be cognizant of anything we do at a point in that animal's life, it all follows through, right? We can't have 15 bad days and try to have a good day at the end. It, it needs to be a lot of good days stacked up. That's exactly right.
0: It's controlling every process
2: that you use to produce a, a fed cow
0: or, or a market cow and bull. Those are the ones harder to think of the market cows and bulls because they've got a lot of days. It's easy to forget about them, but you know what? They contribute a big chunk of the value to the beef industry, and I would lump into that category dairy cows. Yeah, and so all all of those have to be controlled um, if if we're going to manage the the product. I mean, think about how a consumer reacts if you know some for some way um, one of those. Foreign objects gets through the supply chain all the way to a consumer. I mean, you know, there's going to be an instant lawsuit. Um, you know that it's going to cause all sorts of additional cost to address that um, from a number of administrative and and um, plant management um, methodologies. And so, um, yeah, it's a it's a big problem. And so it's something we got to. We got to work on. I think I think the BQA coordinators around the country are going to put some emphasis on that during the next five
2: years. Yeah. So that makes sense. So so foreign objects, certainly an an area of focus. And that that makes sense on how we might try to work forward on those. Any any other areas that you see as either problem areas or areas that we should maybe uh, have other opportunities to improve? Uh, two areas I would list, you know, in the time that we
0: have. Um, firstly, I, I should say this. If anybody's interested in the in-depth reports from these studies, they can go to bqa.com. And those all of the, all of the reports from this study are now available. So anybody can download them and take a look at them. But um, the, the other two things I would list that are sort of top of mind for me are uh, liver abscesses. Um, our, our percentage of the cattle population that still has liver abscesses is still significant. It's about the same as it was in 2016, um, around 20 to 25 percent of the population. And then the other thing is bruising. Um, we're seeing more bruising. And it's not because the transportation, the truck drivers aren't trained, because we know they're trained now. We think it's because the cattle continue to get larger and larger and larger. Um, the bruises we're seeing they're they're less. They're not like deep tissue bruises like we used to see. So we think that the indications are that cattlemen are are treating animal handling practices um, with respect. They're doing the right things with cattle handling practices. We think, but. Um, when you get cattle to a certain size, you know the people that build trailers, transportation trailers, there's not much more they can do to make them taller and wider and things like that. And so we think the cattle are getting so big that maybe we're running into some of these these minor bruising problems. They're minor bruises, but they're on important cuts like the loin that have a lot of value, and we're seeing more of those in frequency as cattle arrive at packing plants. And so that's probably something we're going to figure it need to figure out how to address as well. Yeah. So that's a couple things
2: I would list. So, so let me follow up on the, so the bruising makes sense. And I, and I could see, cause you're right, minor bruises in really important areas like the loin could be damaging and could be hard to fix if it's coming off a trailer without revising some of our, our transportation systems. I'm not sure that the liver abscess problem will be any easier to fix, but tell us a little bit about why maybe tell us first, why those are such a problem at the at the packing plant
0: um there's been different estimates about how much that costs us on a per head basis for every animal that's slaughtered but i think you can say whichever value that you look at they're all significant and um the reason is number one the the livers will be condemned So immediately you have the loss of the value of the liver itself. You know, in places like Egypt and Mexico where we export a lot of livers to, um, that's the loss of a significant amount of value to the aggregate value of the animal that was originally purchased, right, the packer, right? Um, But the other thing that happens is in some cases those abscesses can burst and they can cause other condemnations. While they're in the packing plant, and in some really bad cases, um, the abscesses themselves can cause a fusion um, in the abdomen of cattle, where it fuses with the actual carcass muscle and and other uh, tissues that are in there, and those have to all be then uh, trimmed out and removed, and so you have a huge yield loss there from actual carcass value, and so. When you combine that with the fact that these cattle clearly aren't healthy, and so you probably also have a performance loss while the cattle are being fed in the feedlot or on grass, if they happen to be grass-fed, then you add all of that together, and that works into a significant loss for the industry, um, that one little problem. And it's not an easy problem to deal with. You know, um, for years and years, we fed antimicrobials to try and address it, like tylosin. Um the odds are we're gonna lose Tylosin in the in the future at some point because it's a macrolide. And so we're having to look at um well there's a big need for research in that area, I'll say it that way, to figure out alternatives to prevent this problem from happening while um allowing, you know, performance and, and efficiency to also um enter the industry so yeah absolutely i don't know if that answers your question but no
2: it does because it's a cha- it's a challenging issue and, and all of the other ones we talked about i mean at least with uh buckshot or darts the solution is straightforward the implementation of the solution is a little hard to figure out right so we, we just don't put those foreign objects in and that's the goal uh the, with yeah. liver abscesses we kind of need both sides of the equation. We need to know how and when they're forming, and how to better manage to prevent those as they go through, and and that becomes a that becomes a real challenge as as we look forward. So, so you know,
0: it bothers me too that because I think people from outside the industry would look at that problem and say, well, this is an animal health issue um, that is a consequence of the way that we produce cattle, and that's actually not true. Because we see that same liver abscess frequency in non-fed cattle just as much as we see it in fed cattle. And so it's something we're going to have to address across the
2: population. Yeah, you're exactly right. So in adults versus fed cattle, and and part of it is we have the, the beauty of cattle is they have that big rumen and it can digest grass. And the reason it does is because it's full of bacteria and protozoa and lots of other stuff which, <laughs> when drained out of there, go right through the liver. That's right. And, you know, we're still learning a
0: lot more about what causes them and how they're caused and and mainly, you know, what we can do about them. But um, it's a difficult problem, so it's something we're going to have to focus on.
2: Yeah. It C- certainly becomes an, an issue as you go through. What feedback after doing these for several years, the the beef quality audits, what feedback do you get from retailers, purchasers, quick service restaurant, anybody that on that end of the industry, how do they view it? Because as you and I you described it, you and I are Look at all this progress we've made. Do they see it the same way or or different?
0: They do. And in fact, in this last round of the audit, they say that our perception. The perception of the beef industry is improving. Um, The image of the industry is improving. Um, I think that, in terms of credibility with consumers, cattlemen have good credibility. They, you know, consumers trust and believe them, and that's that's a good thing. I mean, we need to leverage that Um, by doing things right and by caring. um, it, It makes a big difference to consumers, but. The other thing, you know, is that uh, as time goes on and we continue to address some of these defects that that we're still seeing and, you know, some of the defects are becoming more sophisticated and complicated, um, I think there'll also be appreciation for that and I think that will also show up in that image response that we we see in the industry. But, um, you know, the BQA program, and I don't want to take up too much time discussing this, but the BQA program in 2016, when we did the audit, uh, nobody knew about it downstream. So once you got past the packing plant buyers of fed cattle, nobody knew about it. And we made a decision in 2016 that, you know, we need to do a better job of telling people the good things that cattlemen do to produce a safe and high quality product. And so they spent some effort on that. NCBA and other Uh, groups have spent some effort in trying to help um, all of the players in the supply chain understand what beef quality assurance is and things that that they're doing, and it's made an impact. And so this time when we asked, um, let's say, a a retailer, did they know about the BQA program? They didn't always know to call it BQA, but they knew that there was programs in place um, that have been designed specifically to address these kinds of problems. And I think that too is contributing to a better image for the industry of, you know, of just being, of caring about this stuff. So, Well,
2: and I think it, it helps that there's a process, right? It's not just you and I saying, hey, these, this is how I do it. And you say, this is how you do it. With BQA, you have the process defined in a series of best management practices That can be implemented across the country and really in a variety of areas because that includes transportation, animal health, vaccines, handling of cattle, how we're we're going to manage them to move them, whether we're on foot or how we're moving them. So I think you're absolutely right. That process and being able to say it's not just us uh, coming up with things on the fly. There's actually protocols and systems and things in place to help go through. I think BQA has been incredibly valuable in that area. And you you mentioned it before, but anybody that's interested in BQA, you can can just Google BQA and you'll go right to the BQA site, which is uh, hosted and has a lot of good information, including this information that, that we've discussed here this afternoon. The reason I like that program is it's boots on the ground. I mean, you
0: have coordinators in all 50 states, Um, working to help producers implement and learn about good programming. And uh, so it's an effective program.
2: And it's made a huge difference. That was, as I mentioned earlier, kind of my first exposure is we were talking about injection sites because it stemmed, and it all stems back to the beef quality audit. Talk about injection sites, where we give them, how we give the injections, and thinking about the end game, right, which sometimes we don't when we're We've got cows or calves that are a long way from harvest, but they all all end up there. That's right. It's time for our
1: famous three. We have a time and labor saving product for you. Beef and Dairy Agrislat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With Beef and Dairy Agrislat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year, and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting and forming. To learn more, visit
2: MyHealthyFarms.com. I would like to ask you three kind of follow-up questions. We're going to change topics. We're not on the Beef Quality Audit anymore. We're going to ask about you. And I'd like to know, what is your favorite beef-related book or resource? In other words, what does the expert read when they're reading about beef? Well, there's...
0: I could list a lot of things. That's a hard one to narrow down to one. But for my discipline and what I teach and and the students that I work with, uh, the book Meet Science um, that is, uh, now has several authors tied to it over several decades is, is sort of the go-to textbook for us. I mean, it's a book that um, helps people that, you know, um, It helps people learn about what the science of meat production is, you know, basically from that live animal um, through the rest of the system. And so it's, it's a great textbook.
2: Yeah. So, and I think that is, and there's a lot of information covered in that book. What what about a non-ag either book or resource? What do you, what do you read or look at when you're not working in ag? Uh, I read a lot of
0: I have been reading a lot of leadership books and not so much from the leadership point of viewpoint, but, uh, from the perspective of, um, understanding, you know, more effective me- methods for, for working with people and, um, being a, a better contributor to society. And, um, from that perspective and, uh, I'm probably going to miss the name of the book that I I most recently read, but it's written by a a fellow out of, uh, out of uh, Minnesota that works real closely with certified Angus beef and his name's Dan Wallaby. And um, he wrote a book on leadership that even I could understand. And uh, it's been a great asset to me. So I've really enjoyed it.
2: Well, and I think that's a great perspective because it's whether we're talking about beef or systems or the process, it comes back to the people. Just like we said on any of these, unless we can get people to implement some of those changes, they don't necessarily help us. And that's right where my last question is, is on the people and that is when you you see someone that is a successful beef professional, so pick any area, but they're a successful beef professional, what sets them apart? What are the attributes?
0: Um, well, my, my vantage point, you know, is going to be different than a lot of folks, you know, because I'm mainly working with students and, and, and even more than undergraduate students, I work with a lot of graduate students. And um, where, where we've been able to help students become successful and become leaders in the industry, um, the attributes I would characterize those people as having is number one, they have a strong work ethic. Um, number two, they you know they they come from all different backgrounds, all different regions of the planet. Um, they're pretty diverse in terms of their um, their backgrounds and their value systems and everything else. But one thing that's common about all of them is they have this work ethic, and um, that's that's bode them well in pretty much everything that they wanted to do. And then the second thing that they have is they have a passion for the industry. Um, I don't see too many people that you know, go out there and um, they rise through the ranks and they position themselves to become, you know, truly impactful leaders in the industry unless they, they have some passion for it. I mean, they have to care about what they're they're working on. And so that passion something I look for whenever we're working with graduate students. And then, you know, the last thing is uh, I believe in lifelong learning. I still learn things every day. My wife makes that clear to me. And uh, so... You know, lifelong learning is a concept that is sometimes lost on people that, that I've I've worked with. And um, there's never a day where we're all going to lo- know everything. So it's uh, the continued pursuit of learning is really important. And all, all of those three characteristics I see in folks that end up being really pro- strong professionals and impactful in the industry.
2: Well, they're all at least a little bit interrelated right the, the work ethic the lifelong learning and engaging in your passion going for something that is really what you want to do those those things are all interconnected and i think really enjoyed visiting with you and i i especially enjoyed the kind of talking through the beef audit and the importance of that to the industry as a whole and i think it takes it takes all of us so all of us that do have a passion for the beef industry need to understand what does it look like at the end of the life of the cattle? Because that is the beginning of the commercial life of beef, right? So we, we manage cattle all the way through, and then at some point it becomes beef, and that's still part of our production chain. There There is no end or stop there in the middle. So I really enjoyed visiting with you, Dr. Belk, and thanks for joining us today.
0: Yeah, my pleasure, and I've enjoyed it as well. Thanks for the opportunity.
2: elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting, look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by WiseMatics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time-consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.